A long time ago, in a podcast far, far away. Actually, it was the other day, but whatever. James, wrong song, that's fucking dinosaurs. Shit, shit, okay, 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 here we go. Yeah, something like that. Space is more than just pretty little planets and stars, and maybe even aliens. Speaking of aliens, where the heck are they? Don't worry, I'll tell you about that in the episode. Today, the boys crack open a beer and reach for the sky. We're going to talk about why we're not as big of a civilization as you think, some new technologies to get us into space, and if aliens were to come to Earth or vice versa, what would be the best course of action? For more, please head over to our social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel to see how we turn our projects into reality. Awesome, and welcome back to another episode of Beers with Engineers. You know the drill, boys? Yep. Let's get stuck into this one. Excellent, excellent. Now, um, full disclosure, don't know what we're talking about today. <laughs> I've just been instructed to th- chuck it, just be like a DJ and just throw it over to uh, Sean. So, uh, hit me. Oh, well, gentlemen, I want to talk about uh, one of the most exciting things um, I think is in the engineering field. And this is, of course, is space. Do, 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 do. That's Jurassic Park thing song, sorry. Um, but- <laughs> stuck in the past, mate. Still stuck in the past. Yeah, I'm thinking of the wrong if, movie. If anything, the- you sh- if anything, you should put like the Futurama soundtrack in there. Cue Mos Eisley Cantina. Yeah, something like that. Well, this is the thing, right? Because there's a lot of movies and references to space because it's so unknown. People get away with doing all these different like genres and styles like space space exploration is like its own um like topic on netflix now because there's so many things about it so many things that are not known about it it is uh, a really interesting area especially for people with technology focus because it does you have to use a lot of technology to enable space flight and exploration and new civilization so I've been really excited about this all week to talk about space and a few things that in space that I'm really, really excited about. And so like I'm gonna I'm gonna start something theoretical and then we'll move into more of the, the fun stuff. Um have you gentlemen ever heard of the Kardashev scale? The Kardashian scale? No, the Kardashev scale. Oh Kardashev. Uh I have. I thought I thought that was a scale of ranking the Kardashians. Yeah, obviously I was say, Kendall yeah. obviously Kendall is the hottest. Uh, okay. And then it goes down right. from there. Okay, what? Well, who's last? I want to know. Uh, probably like Kylie or Kim. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the, fair uh, the, Kendall's the only one I actually know by face. That's what I was going to say. That's what I was trying to trip you up on. <laughs> okay, but no, yeah. not the Kardashians, even though there's like... Okay, they have nothing to do with space. So let's let's move past that. So the Kardashian scale. Uh, so it's the Kardashev scale. So it, it was developed by a guy named Nikolai Kardashev in 1964. And it was a theoretical way to measure civilization. And it's not like empirical. It's not like you have to hit this amount. But it was a way to s- describe how a civilization is in kind of a high, high view, top-down look. And so there's like six different levels of the Kardashev scale. And each one is like a way to measure or gauge how a civilization is going in relation to the stars, which I think is really, really cool. For us, we've talked about the Industrial Revolution and, and like, changing from, mo- uh, like, monarchs to mercantile empires. This is, like, like, zooming back out. This is huge, and it, like, sets the groundwork for 
how civilization, the human uh, civilization, will look at like in the next few thousand, even millions of years. So it's its scope and scale is a lot bigger than what we're used to, which is why I'm really excited about it. Okay, um, enough about the introduction. What is the Kardashian scale? So there, there's different measurements and there's six current um, types of civilization that it describes. Um, so four, five, and six are so far down the track, they haven't even developed that one yet, even though this was developed 40, 40 years ago. Because we haven't even got to like the second or third one, we don't know what the fourth, fifth, or sixth is. But we, there's a kind of a, um, a logarithmic scale that there's there's going to be something there. But the idea behind it is a type zero civilization is a civilization that really doesn't use that much energy. And the Kardashian scale is really based on energy. And there's been alternatives. Carl Sagan, he made commentary on this saying, instead of being energy, it should be information. How much information does a civilization have? Which, I mean, doesn't really help with the whole expanding across um, empires, but it does... It is a measurement, but a type zero civilization pretty much is just people that mine, um, build campfires. A type one civilization is a, known as a planetary civilization. That means they can use and store all the energy available on the planet. So just to reiterate, humanity is not even a type one civilization yet. We're closer to a type zero just because we haven't even got all the energy on this planet yet, let alone the, like, the solar systems and whatnot. Um, so we're really like um, at the bottom of the barrel now. We're really starting off. This is like uh, in terms of like the industrial clock. This is like the 13th second out of an hour. We're really starting off. But it kind of sets the groundwork for the next levels. And then the type two is when known as a stellar civilization where you're able to control all the energy in the planetary system. So you, you've moved on from Earth and you can now colonize Mars and the moon and you've got mining on asteroids and you're developing all these other technology. And then the type three, and this is the one that a lot of people get stuck on because it's it's like the furthest they can see forward technology wise. It's the galactic civilization where you can control energy of an entire galaxy, where it's not just our planetary system. It's not just our sun. It's the next door neighbor's sun. We can control all of that. All of this together is under one governmental rule or one, I guess, I don't know, group or uh, let's be honest, it's probably going to be Amazon or Tesla or Google who own all of these stars in the future. So, But the idea is type three is the uh, the one that usually you see in TV and movies of yeah. like galactic That's sort empires. of like, yeah, it looks like a, like a Star Trek US, USS Enterprise sort of business where they go like to different type of types of planets and whatever. Dead on, yeah. dead, dead on. That's exactly it. And the thing is, what's the next step after that? What What do you do once you've captured the stars? What do you, what do you, where do you go from there? Capture God. Capture the universe. <laughs> I think at that Cap- point, you're pretty dark much matter. God. Yeah. Well, th- actually, that's one of the things in the Type 2 civilization, Dark Matter. So Type 2 is the one that I think is really exciting I want to talk about today because it's so close to us, even though realistically it's a few thousand years away. Type 2 civilization is... Very interesting because of the technology they claim, right? So technology that one of the technologies they claim is like um, micro micro environmental gravitational control. When you get into the point where you can turn energy into matter, you could create your own gravity. So you could double the gravity on Earth or on a satellite, create gravity of Earth without actually having to do the centrifugal force, the trick that they currently do to try and get that gravity in, in play. Um, but the other one that I really, really want to talk about is known as a Dyson Sphere. 
Have you gentlemen ever heard of a Dyson sphere before? And it's not a vacuum. Yeah, I have. But before you get into that, I want to ask a quick question. What's this scale measurative relative to? So, or what order do they go up by? So, like, I'm, I said it wasn't really milestones, but I, I think it, it, it is. Again, it's a theoretical measurement. So, it's not really like, oh, you have to hit this mark. Uh, like, I think they had, like, uh, what do you call it? They had equivalent areas. So, for example, a type zero civilization could only use up to one megawatt total energy across a planet. And so that would be like a few thousand campfires. But when you had very little humans, that's probably what you're hitting. And then, um, and now you look at a gen, like a normal solar farm, they're 300 megawatts each. If they generate for an hour, that's the same energy as a whole civilization used in a hundred years kind of thing. Like that's, that's the scope and scale. And so the idea is that as our energy consumption grows, that we would hit, become a different civilization but i think it's not exactly the exact amount of energy it's more more or less the like the ability to capture all energy that's available and to mine and find new sources at at a time it's not an actual number yet cool so it's like taking one source of energy and then actually expanding on that to taking multiple sources of energy but actually going to where they're located and being able to expand on that and how exactly you harness it as well both across the galaxy, across the solar system, and locally as well. Yeah, yeah, effectively you're right. Yeah, it's, it's the idea that you can capture as much as you need to do exactly what you needed to do. And so, like, back in a civilization where you only had campfires and whatnot, you couldn't really do that much. Your technology was quite limited. As energy consumption grows, so does technological understanding, application, technology itself grows with energy use. For us to travel stars, we need the power of several, like, several nuclear power stations over a hundred years in one second, like the, it's it's quite a exponential scale. So for us to get beyond our current limits, our current technology limits, we need to be able to develop things that use a lot more power, and cold fusion and like dark matter reactors, all like all these like buzzwords they put into movies that no one seems to understand. Quantum computing. Um, I hate that one when people use quantum computing. But yeah, it's it's the idea that you could you can develop technology and not need new additional energy. You could, you could harness it, you could develop it, you could um, find that resource quite abundantly. Very interesting, sir. So talk about mm. this uh, Dyson Sphere. Okay. So the Dyson Sphere is something that I'm really, really excited about because it's a very abstract concept because for us, humanity will not be able to achieve it in the next even 500 years. There's not enough resource to do it. But it's a really interesting idea. So the idea behind a Dyson sphere is all all the energy in our planetary system is developed from the sun, right? Every every like everything rotates around this large gravitational mass, this massive ball of hydrogen in the middle that's constantly undergoing fusion. It gives off heat that provides energy and life to different planets. Um and it also like protects us a little bit and also gives us solar flares. It, it's a bit of like a back and forth relationship. Anyways, the idea behind the Dyson Sphere is we're no longer slaves to the sun. We then control the sun. Effectively, what it's doing is it's encapsulating part or the entire sun completely. And we use that energy that's just wasting off into to sun to the rest of the, the cosmos. We harness that for our own useful benefit. So we could have a civilization um, around the sun and it would have exactly what it needs to survive at all times. We could then also 
channel the energy coming off from the sun into fuel for rockets and then use that to harness somewhere else. So imagine this, like a solar system just going dark, not because the planet or the sun went out, because we became God and controlled it. How crazy in scope and size that would be. So would it always look like nighttime then? Like you'd never have really a blue sky or would you have to artificially create that? Well, it depends where you are. Are you on the space station around the sun or are you on Earth? If you're still on Earth, you're looking at this like Death Star looking thing in the sky. At that point, I don't think anyone's going to be on Earth. Earth would be a wasteland, I'll be perfectly honest. I think humanity will become a spacefaring civilization by the time we're developing Dyson Spheres. Mm, this is uh, this is going to touch into a topic I have later, but yeah, continue. Yeah. But yeah, so the idea of like the, the Kardashian scale is, is really quite interesting because the, just the the, the scope of it is immense. Um, even though like we've looked back over millennia, this is now looking forward millennia. And it's the unknown. It's like ideas and concepts and whatnot, dark matter, anti-gravity rooms and things like that. They're really interesting. Um, and they're all postulated. But again, all, all inventions were bad ideas until they became reality. Once they became reality, they just became the norm. And Especially so, space ideas, eh? Well, like space ideas are, to a degree, founded in truth. So it's not even a bad idea. They're, they're quite useful if we could develop them. We could then become this amazing civilization moving forward. And this is the scale. This is the roadmap to get there. I'm really excited about where we will be in 500 years. If I had looking glass to see in 500 years in the future, how excited I would be to see what we are accomplishing. I remember like 500 years ago, we were killing each other of which guy in the sky was angrier. But um, and now look at us, how we are. Look at where we're going to be. Uh, I'm kind of excited about that. Anyways. Something um, I want to appreciate about that though is like you look at the very small timescale we've evolved into how you know technical and intelligent we are and you look at that on the broader scale of how long it's taken Earth to um, come into the universe and it gets to a point is I don't even care if I die and don't see this technology. I want to know that I contributed to it somehow and rest peacefully knowing that in 500, 600 years is something I did a very minute amount that contributed to this social uh, engineering realm. Yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, the idea that we, we would be a small stepping stone along the path of the future in terms of humanity becoming a galactic empire, even though that seems so foreign right now, just the idea of it um, is so interesting to me. So I, I, I definitely like this topic quite a bit. So enough about me bashing on about the Kardashian scale. Let us, uh, let's move over to you, James. What have you brought to the space chat? Yeah, sure. So it's good that you mentioned the whole thing about humans becoming smarter and smarter. And as a civilization, we just grow exponentially. So a good question that always comes up between me and a lot of um, other fellow lovers of the space world is, is there aliens in the world? Are we alone? Is it extraterrestrial life? And my pure opinion is, yes, I 100% believe there's something else out there. But I like to delve into the facts is why haven't we been found yet? Why don't we know where these aliens are? How, why can't we get to the other planets? Why haven't they come and send us any signals yet? And there's a great phenomenon that goes into it, which Stephen Hawking was a big advocate of. So a bit of background is life began when you had carbon, hydrogen, phosphorus, nitrogen, oxygen just come together randomly and create what's called DNA or the building blocks for DNA. And it's been found that the chances of DNA forming itself by a random array is so low that some statisticians would deem it as impossible because of how low the odds are and because DNA actually can't survive in space. The radiation would destroy it. 
Now, the ultimate time frame for life to develop in a solar system is about 10 billion years because the sun would destroy, just engulf Earth in about 10 billion years. So you've already got time as a limiting factor. Now, 10 billion years is a long time. Remember, the universe has been around for 14.7 billion years. So fossil evidence suggests that life actually began on Earth three and a half billion years ago. So it took about 500 million years for the Earth to stabilize to the point where we could sustain life. And it took another 500 million years for that cooling off period to actually begin. So that's already 1 billion years for Earth to actually allow life to start. In this time, primates like ourselves only began to advance in the last 70,000 years from the variations of the Homo species. And only in the last 300 years have we transformed into the high-tech um, species that we are today using technology, harnessing the power of um, the sun more and more. So you look at that, that's 300 years versus 3.5 billion years. This very small time frame that we take in when we actually became so smart. And you think of that for a sec. Now, if you were to empty out everything in the earth and make it hollow and fill it up with sand, for example, and technically that's what the earth is. It's just a, a big rock filled with different uh, sediments and sand. And someone was just to put their hand in this hollow earth and pick out a random sand grain. And that sand grain is to, for life to occur on earth. That was a probability of a, a civilization evolving to what the point it is today. Now, something I like to touch on quite quite greatly here is why haven't we been found yet? What are the points that, that make this, um, you know, what, discussable? And the first thing is, is you need Earth to be, or you need a planet to be in its Goldilocks zone. Now, a Goldilocks zone is an area where water can um, simultaneously exist as steam, liquid, and ice. Without that, you can't have life on Earth. So let's go into the actual points about why we haven't been found yet. Point one is based on the probabilities I just explained to you guys, the odds of intelligent life appearing in such a long period are so low that Earth is probably the only planet that this random occurrence happened in the last 14.7 billion years, at least so far. Now, this is something that I don't like to believe in because it's just boring. Like, you want to you know that something else is out there. Um, point number two is, and this is something that I probably would most likely believe is to why I've been it. probably the, what I believe in the most is during our evolution... Well, during the evolution of a species on another planet, an asteroid or comet has collided with that planet during the time, wiping out its entire population, just like it did 66 million years ago to the dinosaurs. So it's reasonable to assume that asteroid collisions occur every 20 million years. Um, so it's possible that life on other planets have had the luxury to evolve, sorry, haven't had the luxury to evolve into this expansionating intelligence that we've seen on Earth today. Um, point number three, I really hope this isn't true because it's so pessimistic that intelligence has evolved so much and chaos has caused it to become so unstable. And before we've actually had the opportunity to harness the power to travel to different planets, we've destroyed ourselves. Like this happening on other planets. <coughs> this is kind of happening now on Earth. <coughs> um, you like to like to say. Um, the next point is we've completely missed our boat. And when I say we've missed our boat is the universe is so large and diverse that we've simply just been overlooked and missed or messages have been sent to us and we're not smart enough to interpret these advanced messages yet from other parts of the universe. We don't know how to respond because you think we, we, we know how to discuss things through communication. We know how to speak languages. We know how to do sign language. Who knows how a species in whoop whoop of the universe is going to communicate a message to you? It could be so random. So, an initiative was... Uh, Stephen Hawking was actually part of this in 2015, which is like a breakthrough program to try and decipher messages from outer space. So, there's a lot out there right now that's trying to 
you know, harness these messages. Now, these are the four theories that were that were put into place by Stephen Hawking. I've got a bit of my own theory here. So this kind of goes into something a bit out of the engineering realm, but my theory is that space is so undiscovered and we're unaware of the chaos that can occur out there, right? It's just such a big place. So natural disasters can potentially occur that we don't even know exist yet and could be the limiting factor or hindrance of other species being able to arrive here. That's one thing I've thought of, but yeah, so many um points when it comes to talking about life in the universe. Yeah. Well, like one thing you just mentioned there, I think is really important to talk about is the the time, right, of human de- developing to the point where we're now starting to kind of like venture amongst the stars, right? So Earth itself was developed 4,600 million years ago, right? And then it took about 800 million years for it to develop into a... Um, into some sort of atmosphere that it could harness life. Like you were saying in terms of radiation killing DNA, it took about like 800 million years before it could develop life. And then after that, humanity has only been around for 130,000 years in terms of like our predecessors that were able to harness tools and whatnot. So if you imagine that, right? So you got, imagine you had a rope and that rope is 4,600 meters long. Change that to yards, whatever. It's a, it's an elementary scale, but it's four thousand six hundred units of something. Well, imagine how long that rope is. Imagine it going down your road and then into your town. Right? Humanity has been zero point one three units of the lifestyle of you, like of the the Earth's timeline. Zero point one three meters. So imagine that rope going four and a half thousand, four and a half kilometers away. We are zero point we are 13 centimeters of that rope. So even though we developed as a humanity and uh, as a, as a, like a civilization in that little bit of time, we need another civilization to do the exact same thing. in that 0.13 meters of time, that, that kind of arbitrary unit I just made up has to then align with ours to the point where we're the exact same rate. So the fact that that's happening yeah, unlikely. They could have happened 100 million years ago or 100 million years in the future, but it's so far away, we're never going to see it. And so there's there's like, oh, there's so many stars. It, there's like an argument, right? Imagine the Sahara Desert. Look how many sand uh, grains of sand are on your beach in the Sahara Desert. Gather all the sand up on the planet and imagine one grain of sand. Every grain of sand on Earth is 10,000 stars. That's the number of stars that can be perceived amongst the universe. So and a bunch of them can control life and whatnot, but the timeline of to get like this tiny narrow slit of this rope of time has to line up between two civilizations. It's almost impossible. Yeah. So that's what you'd, why another reason. What you'd have on this rope as well is different breakpoints in civilizations. So you mentioned point one three centimeters. So you'd have on a civilization every twenty centimeters of that rope, it would just stop, or approximately twenty centimeters, because that would represent an asteroid wiping out that civilization as well, which, you know, we're due for an asteroid on Earth. We're not going to live to see it because that chance is very, very low, but that's one of the ways it can end. When would it happen? Completely. When would the, uh, the comet or the asteroid eventually hit Earth? Every 20 million years on average. And we're 60, we're 46 million years late. So it can happen. See, asteroids fall into the phenomenon of the uncertainty principle as well. We can detect them because we have the technology to do it. As uncertain as an alien. Pretty much, yeah. It's uncertain as your your, your chances of winning at the, the casino. Um, generally speaking, quite low. But um, also additionally too that we've gone to the point where we now have people who are paid to look at the stars. 
and we could detect a meteor. And if that's the case, we could, if it was a like 50 years out that we could see something coming towards Earth and killing us, we could divert it. And again, a great movie was Armageddon, which um, did a great job of ex- not re- really explaining a good principle well. But the idea of a nuclear bomb pushing it slightly out of orbit or slightly off uh, trajectory would save humanity. We now have the capacity to do that, whereas a fish on another planet would have no fucking idea how to build a nuclear device on another asteroid like hurtling towards this planet. So there's we might actually be out of that sink because we could then divert that asteroid from hitting, or if we need to, we just move to another planet. If we get if we get to that technology level fast enough, Earth could be wiped out. Earth would be gone, but we could call another planet home. And so it's, it's like this really interesting idea of that even though there is uncertainty, we could then break it. There's, there's one other thing I want to talk about in life and outside the, the universe, and it's how would you approach, if you knew there was life, like humanity, where there's carbon-based um, like animals out there, well, human, not humans, but beings, what is the best approach to dealing with an alien? As in Arrival. if they came to Earth or if we had to go there? Both. Imagine both. We, we, we met with them. No. Um, or they met us on Earth. What is the best approach? I think, I think history has I, taught us, you know, if, if we had to go there, not, not to be assholes about it. <laughs> hmm. No, yeah, I think the, the best... History. Of- There's no history for aliens. Yeah. <laughs> history of colonization, I mean, or history of... Oh, right. Okay. Of finding countries, you know. Just depends a, on what don't the aliens take are like. If you go there and they're, and they're shit scared, then, you know, you respect that. But yeah, Patty, sorry, go on. No, well, I mean, you wouldn't take a playbook. You wouldn't take a page out of the playbook of the English or anything like that, because if anything, they're like the least successful uh, colonizers of all time. They've lost fifty percent of their colonized lands, or they've given more. They've given it back, surely. Yeah, probably. (laughs) I was just, I was giving a very loose stat. Um, Yeah, but probably the best way I would think to go about it is is probably the plot of Arrival. If is that's kind of the basic plot. So you try to establish language first. Once you understand, when once you clearly can understand each other, then you can then talk about other stuff. No, fair enough. There was there was an interesting um, dilemma because this is a conversation I had with my physics teacher in the first year of uni, and he goes, "I I explain it as the 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 hunter in the woods metaphor. You might have heard this one, but the idea is you humanity." you are a hunter in the woods. You have the capacity to kill and you can die, but you're in the, w- the woods going through unexplored areas and you see another hunter and they don't see you. What do you do? And so your three options are is to communicate with the hunter because if they're traveling space as well, they have the ability to kill you. Ignore the hunter or kill the hunter first. And the physics teacher says the best course of action for humanity as one collective is to kill the other hunter first, to colonize, not colonize them, wipe them out. Because the chances are, if you ignore them, they can then see you and kill you, versus if you communicate, they can also then kill you. Whereas if you strike first, the chance of you winning is a lot higher. And it's the best survival for humanity. It's a very it's a very dark approach, but in terms of the best interest for humanity, it says to kill the other aliens. I'd try a capture method, I reckon, if, if if I was in the hunter's position, try and capture them first to see if you could communicate. If there was no hope, then you go with point A, darkly and unethically. But on that grand scale of exploring another planet where, obviously, 
your civilization has to come first in that instance. Um, yeah, you, you, you'd really be dip- try to be diplomatic about it, but protect yourself at all costs. Yeah. And so it's, it's a very interesting dilemma of what, would, what should humanity do? And there's no clear answer on it because we've never hit that stage. But at one point, humanity might hit that point. And like that point I just made, which is a very good point. <laughs> I keep saying point. But um, it is What's the a point? Very, very interesting dilemma that... Thank- yeah, exactly. Well, the point is we don't need to deal with it now, but it's a theoretical that we should potentially consider in the, in the near future. Well, not near, but future of some description. Anyways, uh, Patty, over to you. Give us some good movies of stars or space stuff that we can break down. Sure thing. Well, I think I've already mentioned it already in the podcast, but I want to talk about that movie Arrival because it's possibly, from one of the, the very limited amount of research I've done, it's probably the one of the more scientifically accurate films out there and by that i mean the way that they depict um dialect and communication as well as probably james's uh james's point the fact that it's probably next to near impossible that it's probably is actually sorry it is possible that we may have received some type of communication from other life forms out there but you know what? we're just too dumb to either to recognize it or too dumb to understand the message so i want i wanted to kind of get are you guys familiar with the movie i haven't seen it but i heard it's like the opposite of that fifth wave movie which is terrible Hmm. basically yeah so instead of the instead of the uh well spoiler alert i I, oh maybe i shouldn't maybe i shouldn't bring it up then was it if anything this would be probably better for a uh like a a full podcast on itself like a movie movie, but it's yeah, explain one of the concepts or one of the like main okay. parts about this this communication problem. Well, the main concept of the movie is the language. And that's kind of the point I wanted to talk about because this is the purpose of the well, one one of one of the main purposes of the alien's visit to Earth. So when the alien arrives, you know, immediately every single general with a dick in his hand is like, Oh, we've got to bomb it, we've got to it's probably got massive weapons in there. We want to steal them or capture them or do something. And then, you know, obviously along comes, you know, this, uh, the, the character Louise and she's like, you know, I'm like a dial, like she's, um, a, t- a teacher of, uh, she's a link. She's a linguist. No, what, what's the, what am I looking for? A, a linguistist or linguist specialist or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So she, that's her specialty. And she's like, no, let me com- try and communicate, establish some type of communication with them. And the communication hmm. they use, or at least this alien species use, is something called what is it called again? It is, it's oh, it's uh, they use symbols to describe yeah. words, sentences, and paragraphs. So one right. symbol can mean you know a whole page of dialogue. Yeah, wow. is it, there's an actual there's an actual, there's an actual uh, word for it. I can't think of it. It's on my head. Or it's a uh, hmm. logograms. It's called logogram. So the symbols mean words or an entire sentence or feeling. Mm. And this is their gift to humanity. So this extra help right. because, eventually, because eventually, because the, and there's other thing, other stuff happens in the movie. I don't want to give everything away, but mm. with this sense of communication, what would you fellas do if you were able to fluently communicate 
with an extra an extraterrestrial species what would you guys want what would you guys hope to gain from talking to um someone not from this world the first and foremost i think you can't put a price on friendship i think i try and establish <laughs> some sort of like friendly wow. bond with them or, or something because because you're just trying to get another friend on facebook here <laughs> yeah yeah well exactly right because what i'd then try and do is have that good relationship and establish some trade with them with us and their planet you know mm. that, that 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 introduces a whole new realm of technological advancement improvement it stimulates a new economy yeah. in many ways you wouldn't think are imaginable so i i'd go the trade route and i'm not trying to be you know mad capitalist here or some mad liberal or whatever mm. i just think that'd be the most important thing to establish with an extraterrestrial species you're very diplomatic dollars answer. and cents here james <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very, very like if Amazon ruled the world. Now nah, we've got to make a trade route. We've got to have a a patent and all their technology. <laughs> mm. 100%. No, I, I I agree what you're saying, but also additionally, if there's a, a an alien civilization that's so far ahead of us that's launching probes onto Earth and giving us information, they could easily wipe us out and take the resources themselves. That would be easier than establishing trade routes. So it's up to them if they wanted to do that. So there's a chance that they might not do that at all. Um, if we could communicate with aliens that can that is so far advanced that's now sending out probes to communicate with additional civilizations, I would ask them about spaceflight and travel and how to harness technology beyond what we currently have. For us, it's a learning curve. But if we can cut that learning curve in half, if we can get a little bit advanced, but just a hands-on a bit of technology and really understand why and how it works, because... Again, imagine um, this is a, a funny story about uh, James Cook when he came to Australia was where well, he landed um, and had like a few pot shots at a few Aboriginals, but then actually tried to establish trade with Aboriginals when he got to Australia and he tried to give them cloth and they went, what the fuck is this? Why do I want this? This, this is useless to me. And they gave him back food and that was useful to him. Um, like the things that we use, steel, iron, metal, lithium, things that we need every day are probably so redundant to this alien technology, they might not want anything that we have to offer. In terms of minerals and whatnot, they can get that amongst the stars. Earth would not be a good mining colony. It wouldn't be a great place to do it because it's probably so backwards and old, they wouldn't do it. Even if the point where we could travel stars, they'd be like a backwater country. They don't want any of the shit that we have. Yeah. Mm. But Mm. yeah, then again, like, you should look at the other side as well. Who's to say they might not have something on their planet that we so happen mm. to have on Earth as well? Definitely take your point on all the, all the iron, the lithium, um, sodium, all that sort of stuff. But I reckon, yeah, every planet would have their own sort of little distinguish, I don't know, characteristics that there would be something that they would want to make some sort of economy from. I mean, this is also a throwback to, like, uh, what was it, Aliens vs. Cowboys? Great film. Where, what was it? Um <laughs> The Bond guy. What's his name? What's his name? Daniel Craig. Um, thinking Craig. Daniel Craig, yeah. Daniel Craig. They just fucking stole our gold. They came down and just killed everyone, took the gold, and then the cowboys had to mount a rescue. Um, if they saw something that was valuable, they would just take it. Like, they would just easily just kill everyone and take it. They would just launch a meteorite, the minerals would be safe, and they would just take the mineral, whatever that is. I feel like if they're communicating with us, they're not in the in the aim to trade. 
Yeah, but that's that that's my way. opinion of it in terms of yeah. how to deal with alien civilization. Again, this is theoretical, so we have no idea what life's going to be like. But hmm. I think yeah, I think Patty is a good point. It's uplifting technology, Very so easy. we well, would use that. We would use their technology. Hmm. Well, this kind of brings up my next point. So uh, I wanted to talk about that, but I also wanted to talk about something called terraforming. Do you guys know what terraforming is? Mm. Oh, yeah, for sure. 100%. Cool. Can you guys quickly just, you know, give a very, like, you know, a year six simplistic um, explanation mm. of it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for you. Okay. Uh, I'll jump into this one, then James can add in points. The idea behind terraforming is the idea that, like, the the Goldilocks zone of what a planet needs to survive on life is dependent on a lot of different factors, how close it is to a planet, the gravity, the atmosphere, the the ability to get water, which is really essential for human beings to survive. Um, the idea of terraforming is to take something that's quite hostile, a hostile environment where the temperatures are too high or there's no water or the atmosphere doesn't work well and changing in that entire landscape into something that can then breed life. And it's not to the extreme of like, changing the whole atmosphere. Yeah, that's on the scale of terraforming. But simply just raising the, the degrees by a few um, is enough. And so there's, there's already plans on how to terraform Mars, right? If you took all the nuclear devices on Earth and launched them on the north, um, the, like the very north point, a north is an abstract term because in space there's no magnetic fields. Oh, well, there is, but there's not the magnetic fields that we're used to. But if you hit the top of the planet where it's furthest away from the sun, where it gets less light, it could actually melt quite a few of its ice caps and then you could have an atmosphere you could release carbon dioxide you could accelerate climate change on a planet that could then create a atmosphere which is not probably hospitable to humans but it would be easier to live on and survive on than what it currently is and the idea of to take a planet move it into a system where it would work well not move it but change into something that humanity could then thrive on james throw over to you yeah, uh, excellent des- description of what terraforming is. And it's also taking advantage of the surface topography, the geotechnical stuff, the soils that are currently on there, and the ecology of the planet. So one thing Elon Musk wanted to do is introduce um, space domes on Mars, which I thought, you know, you think that, I thought, you're like, why would you want to do that? Um, when you think of the long term is we really want to think of how we can get to other planets in case we destroy Earth, which is pretty much what's being done right now. And one thing Elon wanted to do was take advantage of the soils on Mars. Use these space domes to create a hospitable environment without having to modify the atmosphere because that's probably one of the hardest things about terraforming is trying to modify Mm -hmm. that atmosphere. Sean touched on the temperature. So make these domes that could sustain human life but also take advantage of the crops around there. Mars is very rich in minerals and soils and could definitely, definitely work um, for a nice crop or a nice farm. So these, the idea of using space domes and um, adding technology to a planet rather than trying to change mm. it is also something else we can do when it comes to building extraterrestrial environments. Yeah. I think the whole uh, Mars exploration is kind of a test case, right, of, all right, because for, for those who are not knowing it uh, or not aware of it, climate change is happening. And by 2100, Earth is, becomes almost uninhabitable by the, some of the factors that are, are in play, the domino effect of, like, additional carbon being released by the melted ice caps in the north, uh, rising sea levels would kill millions of population. Um, so we we are at a critical point right now where either we learn to potentially live in other planets or save our own. And honestly, 
it looks like going to other planets is a better option. Not because I, I don't want to live on Earth. I fucking love Earth. It's the best place ever. It's got beer. But if um, if we hit a point where Earth becomes unhabitable and 70 years before, previously we were able to colonize a planet, we could then start shifting population. We could grow a population somewhere else. Um, and yeah, so like the Mars dome idea is, 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 a, is a good idea. The only problem is Mars is too far away from the, the sun. It doesn't get as much solar radiance as we do. Hmm. Well, this kind of, it, I'm glad you guys brought up the Mars issue because that's why I kind of wanted to bring up terraforming because all in all, basically, terraforming is, you know, basically, in like simplistically, is Earth going to another place and colonizing it? Mm. It's kind yeah, of, it's kind of like that. That's kind of the dumb, the dumb version of saying it, like of, of explaining it, but that's how it is. Mm. I don't think Earth deserves the right to terraform shit. So I wanted I wanted to bring up the ethical point of views of everyone here about the basically mm. because there's so much eth- there's a lot of ethical issues surrounding terraforming and there's other there's people that love the idea of terraforming because people think it's you know it's our moral obligation to go to other worlds and supply life supply um, and have this planet and have a you know, a, a hypothetical planet flourish mm. with our resources however there's also the point of view where it's unethical to go to a natural um, habitat and change the um, ecological sort of um, surroundings of it so Mm. what do you guys think i think it's a good point but i think um in terms of uh, a make or break it point the the most critical thing in terms of ethics comes down to human surviving right and so like if we had the opportunity to save like a butterfly on a planet or save a million humans what would be the choice is it more ethical to save humans or more ethical to save one native animal and this is this is a a point that i want to break um generally speaking civilizations need to rally behind something right in terms of like a war it's generally speaking, countries go to war because they all unify behind one ideal, right? If human surviving is the ideal and that pushes us to survive and to grow, I, I fully support that. That would mean that we could have a single government, a single language, a single goddamn metric system, fuck the imperial system, but one language, one group of people behind one goal, settling other planets, the ethics behind it becomes blurred because you're right. Yeah, there's like ethics behind colonizing planets, but I think the ethics is you're saving humans here. I think that'll take precedence. But you're right, we shouldn't do things to the point where we're killing other civilizations just so we survive. That's a bit far. But if it's Mars where there's no habitable life so far that we know of, I think there's an argument to be made that yeah, we could we could set up a colony there. Yeah, I think life that I think we this don't is know of yet. The hierarchy of controls into it as well. It's always uncertainty, mate. You never know everything. That's the one thing mm. you know in science. You don't no. know it all. <laughs> I'm think, I'm, when I think of Mars, I'm thinking of, you know, that uh, Godzilla vs. King Kong movie where, you know, the whole planet is hollow and there's a whole civilization in there. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, possible, but we won't know until we land a small colony on. And again, that colony is just going to be a test case. It's going to go down and be like, all right, here's the minerals. Here's a better view of the topography. Here's what we can do to expand. But we won't know until we get there. We can only do so much sitting on Earth looking at, at it through a telescope. 
Something interesting about the whole terraforming thing as well is we're talking about, we always talk about terraforming Mars. Another planet that would be interesting to try and terraform would, believe it or not, be Venus. Venus is essentially hell right now. It is so hot. A lot of acid rain occurs in it. Mm. Devastating lightning storms. You think, why in God's green earth would you try and terraform Venus? We're not on Earth yeah. anymore, so you would do it. <laughs> anyway, um, interestingly enough, 700 million years ago, Venus was actually covered in oceans. It was a nice warm and wet planet. And it was only 500 million years ago where all this magma actually built up in Venus's core. And it was actually released from the mantle, which got rid of tons and tons and tons of CO2 constantly. So like you said before, Sean, it accelerated climate change so much that Venus is just a devastating place now. So the question is, we know Venus once upon a time used to be a habitable place. Mm. If we figured out how it happened, could we then go back to where we were? and try and reform that. But then the argument would be, well, hang on a sec, if Earth is on its way out, then why don't we just try and save Earth? Venus is too Mm. far gone at the moment. But the point being is if you colonize Mars or terraform Mars, you could then focus on fixing both Earth and Venus in the next 200 years, 2,000 years or whatever. Mm. I think you're right. In terms of like colonization, it's also like the, it's a noble pursuit because by uh, like, if you look at technology, right, nuclear bombs. Nu- the first nuclear bomb was awful, right? Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the first case of a nuclear bomb on humanity killed millions. But then you look at what happened after the idea of nuclear research, right? Chemotherapy, advanced um, radiotherapy uh, and whatnot, uh, nuclear energy. It really advanced our understanding of science at that point between the like the, I guess, the late 30s up until now. Even now, our understanding of nuclear physics has enabled uh, everlasting, not everlasting, but longer lifespans for humanity. So even though it's killed many, it's also saved probably a lot more. And so there's an argument to be made that just by having a noble pursuit of pushing in a scientific field of things that we don't know, we could uncover a lot more things. Again, um, carbon fiber and some of the, the, the mesh material that we use today, common stuff, was developed for space flight. It was, it was part of the space suit. It was really expensive stuff. Aluminium was really expensive back in the day. Now it's everywhere. By pushing the scientific barrier into areas that we don't know, and as Patty likes to say, space is the final frontier, if we could push a little bit further into that field, the number of technological advances we have probably like justify why doing them. Yeah, it's not very cost-effective, don't get me wrong. It's just throwing money down a hole. But sometimes we're going to hit gold. I think this is, might be one of them. Spaceflight. Mm. Mm. Very nice. Nice. Any further points, boys? Um, not so much on terraforming. No, I think I'm, I'm wrapped up there. Um, oh. But I do have a follow-up on spaceflight. Go for it. Kick it off. Okay, so this was something that was developed. It's like the Icarus Project. Um, Icarus being the... mythological figure that had uh, wings glued on with wax and then they flew to the sun and died because the wax melted. Um, But the idea of the Icarus Project is spaceflight and the idea behind it realistically is known as a solar sail. And so if you have a flashlight, right, and you turn a flashlight on, light comes out and you can see like where the the light hits and bounces off. Um, Light is both a wave and a particle, and particles um, have momentum. So imagine, like, as you turn on a light bulb, all these little, like, little, little tiny atoms come flying out at high speed. Really high speed, um, but really, really light. 
but it's got momentum. It does actually push things. And so you could use something along the um, the, the light spectrum that has good momentum, good like like weight behind the particle, and then be able to push things. And this is a great thing about space. Because there's no atmosphere, there's nothing to push against you. If you are traveling at 50 kilometers an hour and turn off your engines on a like a rocket ship, right, and stop, you will travel 50 kilometers an hour until you hit something. It doesn't stop. There's nothing to push against you. The idea behind the solar sail is, is very the same, is very similar. So the idea behind it is imagine uh, a sailboat and behind it is pushing um, wind. Wind is pushing this sailboat along. Instead of using wind, you're now using light, photons of light with very small momentum. But if you're in space, there's nothing to push against you. So you could push something slightly and then it becomes faster and constantly accelerating faster and faster and faster. So unlike normal spaceships, which use rockets, that push out solid fuel at really high speeds and then run out of fuel eventually and stop. You could get something where it's like a spacecraft and using lasers on Earth, you could push that spacecraft without using fuel on board. So Earth could have a bunch of lasers located around like the equator that would, as the planet turned, would be shooting exactly this one point behind a spacecraft and pushing it along. And you could then enable spaceflight without using solid fuel on the, on the rocket and you're pushing it with light, little photons of light, along a trajectory millions of years, uh, millions of light years away. Probably not. But the idea that you could then push something away and not use rocket fuel, that's a really big issue. And so by doing this, you could create a new level of spaceflight, and you could transfer like, probes and then actual spaceflight without solid rocket fuel. You just get that out of the, the ship altogether. Whenever I think of the um, the solar sail, I think of Count Dooku landing back on Coruscant when he leaves Geonosis and he opens up like a massive parachute that's reflecting oh, light. Oh, no. Because whenever I've seen like those concept designs for um, the solar sails, I just think of the exact same thing. But mm. no, nah, the idea of using solar sails is amazing. One thing that's always probed me is you're using lasers. And this would be a great thing for my next topic is where you'd put those lasers. You mentioned like in, in the middle of Earth, for example, but then a big problem would be is you're pointing lasers in the sky. What's to stop a plane flying past and being absolutely blown up by this high-powered laser? <laughs> so the, next, the yeah. next thing would be is let's not put it on Earth. Let's put it on an orbit. Let's put it on a satellite. And the thing I want to talk about next um, pretty much solves that problem amongst many. But I won't get into that if there's anything more you, you wanted to go into. Or if Patty, had any questions? Yeah, I think... James, you, you touched a good point. Because of the atmosphere, the light coming out of the atmosphere, if we had a laser on Earth pointed straight up, would not be as strong. Um, there's a lot of things in the way. Um, particles of atmosphere will get in the way and actually reduce it. This is the same reason why a light, a laser, becomes less effective the further away it is. Because of the atmosphere, there's things in the way that block it, little, little atoms of nitrogen and oxygen and whatnot. But if you had in space, there's nothing to bounce it off. If you had satellites or some orbital platform revolving around the Earth and then shooting lasers out, you've like made it so much more effective. And so the question is, how do you get things into space? Well, it's interesting that you ask. So, Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> there's this um, funky phenomenon, or sorry, not a phenomenon, a funky concept called the space elevator. And it's self-explanatory mm. what this is. So when the Eiffel Tower was built, there was this um, Russian scientist and space pioneer called Konstantin Solyovsky. Koski, I can't pronounce Russian last names, but anyway, back in 1895. And this idea inspired, wow, we have this Eiffel Tower. Why don't we take this principle and create an Earth-to-orbit transport system 
which would be extremely expensive and time-consuming. But what scientists have figured out over the past 100 or so years is the absolute insane long-term benefits that would come out of this. So a concept has actually been released in 2000 by NASA. And since then, the idea has been growing rapidly that a space elevator would be like just a physical connection between Earth and an orbit, which is about 35,786 kilometers high. And in 1979, a scientist realized, well, hang on a minute. In theory, the net energy requirements to do this would virtually be almost zero compared to a rocket ship because all the energy could be recaptured in conjunction with using something called the sling effect around Earth's rotation, which was something that was also theorized by Solyoskovsky. So that's a hypothesis that states Earth rotation provides a horizontal acceleration to an object in the elevator. So therefore, it would still have enough velocity to remain in orbit without falling back to Earth. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So I'm only going to, there's a lot of challenges with this, but I'm only going to talk about the engineering challenges. So the first one comes to, well, how do we power the space elevator without heavy cables or onboard fuel? My solution to that would be, hey, Sean, let's go back to your, uh, to, to your, to your vacuum here, your <laughs> Dyson sphere. <laughs> let's do that. But there's so many ways to do it. So the idea of using lasers as well. I think um, one of the methods proposed was putting all these solar capturing panels under the elevator and beaming these microwave-powered UV lasers to this, always providing it with energy. But that was just one solution. A second challenge is this cable has to be very, very light, but also strong enough to the point that it doesn't snap. So as an engineer, you think, holy shit, you can't do that. But there's these things called carbon nanotubes. And in the past 20 to 30 years, we've um, had excellent advancements in nanotechnology. mRNA vaccines are one example of it, but carbon nanotubes basically have this mass produced to solve that which solve this problem. They're very, very strong because they have something which is called a hexog- hexagonal covalent bond. But when they're loaded with insane stresses, the bonds become unstable and fray. So a better solution would be to use graphene and diamond nanothreads. But these have like an unbearable, unbearably high capital cost. But yeah, you need to be is to, to lessen its uh, current chokehold on the diamond supply, please. <laughs> exactly. But uh, anyway, so this is, this is why it's so hard to make. But I want to talk about the insane benefits that come from this. So one of the main benefits is it's extremely expensive currently to send anything into orbit. And this is basically to do with Earth's gravity. So for an Earth to escape Earth's gravity, it needs to come overcome a velocity of um, 11,186 meters per second. And that is proportionate to the amount of fuel the rocket needs, the size of the propellant tanks, and the size of the rockets themselves. So today with reusable rockets, the launch costs uh, somewhere between $1,410 to $2,719 per kilo. The cost of using a space elevator is estimated around $250 per kilo, which is, when you think of that over the long term, you're saving a lot of money over time. Another develop, another benefit is it's cheap deployment of space-based solar arrays because it's not subject to the diurnal weather, weather cycle. So like you were saying, Sean, with the, with the solar sail, is how we get these like light into, into space, how we get it there. Well, now we can actually transport it on the elevator up into orbit so we can collect solar energy in space and then beam it to stations using uh, microwave lasers or beams, which is mm. insane. A last benefit, which I found really interesting and amazing and it comes back to colonization but not on other planets is commercializing and industrializing this right industrializing the low earth orbit inhabiting it adding refueling and manufacturing stations you could have a you could manufacture a spacecraft in low orbit and launch it without worrying about earth's escape velocity so essentially when we come to space travel 
We're not worrying about those takeoffs every time. It's basically like, like you think of it, think of a Tesla, right? When you turn it on, it's not like just and like the engine's got to warm up or anything. It just <laughs> goes straight away. Scale this up to taking off into into space. You're not worried about this massive launch anymore. It's just, oh, sweet, we need to go to Mars. We have a spacecraft here. Turn it on, fly away, let's go. Rather mm. than, oh, we need a specific takeoff. I absolutely agree because the idea of having a orbital shipyard where you're developing ships in space, um, where you're getting materials up to them and then you can avoid that like fuel cost, that's a big one. That's I think uh, Elon Musk did say that if gravity was 9.9 meters per second per second instead of 9.8, we wouldn't be able to colonize planets. The fact that it's 9.8 is perfect. That's like the upper limit of what we can achieve. I, I think I need to double check your escape velocity calculation. I feel like that's uh, for a projectile leaving Earth going straight up uh, without additional fuel, which is why rockets don't actually hit that speed. Um, they get close, but they don't hit that exact speed because they're using fuel to waste it. But if you can get away with that, if you can remove fuel completely and use a space mm-hmm. elevator, yeah, you could have like a fun flight around Venus because you don't need to worry about the entry back into earth and to escape the orbit you could just go i'm gonna have a weekend fly around the sun for a week that's possible now if you had a space elevator yeah yeah exactly i think the escape velocity i looked up was just basically the fuel it needs to sustain approaching that sort of velocity so even if you don't reach that you have to be going towards there to escape earth velocity there's like pretty much no other way you get pulled back into to orbit i I think the escape velocity calculation you're looking at is the uh, velocity required for the effect of gravity to no longer affect Earth, which doesn't include fuel. It's the idea of like a cannonball. How fast does that cannonball need to be to escape Earth's velocity and no longer be affected by Earth's gravity where it returns to Earth? Um, which is a very elementary scale because it doesn't include air resistance and it also doesn't include fuel or any like any other the heat loss or like the friction caused by atmosphere. Um, so it, it's, it was kind of like a fun, arbitrary thing, but it doesn't actually hold because it's not including a lot of other calculations. It's probably like eight times bigger than that, to be perfectly honest. But that's the idea of shooting projectile to, to the atmosphere where it's no longer affected by Earth's gravity. Um, it's a very interesting one, um, but I don't think we want to have like a rail gun that can do that yet because that's fucking terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. But, but, you know, we're getting there because, you know, you think of 300 years versus 3.5 billion years the technology we have now to think of a structure we can have that's potentially strong enough in the time we have and how long we have left to figure out how to actually harness that could be a couple of hundred years at another couple mm. hundred years to actually build that thing so what it yeah. would be is just whenever you want to go to space you take this elevator up to the space station stay there for a couple of weeks you know mm. have a nice view of the stars and then off you go to mars it's it's definitely something to be really excited about. I, I really want to look at... I'd like to have this this future, this idea of the future where we can colonize the stars, become the, the real operator of the planet, understand how everything works, become its, its main, I guess, not really God, but like be the main person that controls it. <laughs> um, it's exciting. Go ahead, go ahead, that's... But yeah, so there's a lot of like there's a lot of merit in this this technology. So I I'd love to I'd love to have this goal in mind and unify humanity under it of the idea of we are dying. We need to like see the the world before we fade into time itself. Let's conquer the stars. That sounds so exciting, doesn't it? Like doesn't that 
like, I don't know, it inspires hope for me. For me, it's something to, to look towards because, I'm again, we won't see this unless we can convert our consciousness into AI and then have a body that isn't breaking down in 100 years. We won't see this. We won't be able to see this technology. But the hope that someone else will is enough for me to push towards. It's something to work towards. And that's what I really want to do. Develop, hold the planet together just long enough for us to escape amongst the stars. That's my dream. What keeps me going is the lifespan of humans is so small compared to how long Earth's been evolving. That It doesn't matter where I'm going to be. It just matters what I can do now. Sort of mm. thing. You know, so that's what gives me hope. It's just like, I am here for such a short amount of time. Yeah. I accept that I'm not going to see this, but I will rest peacefully knowing I contributed to it. Exactly. Yeah, I think the, the, the classic saying is that we were too young, we're too old to to colonize or to, to see the world, to to explore the world. We're also too young to explore the stars. Um, but we're in a point where we can facilitate the latter. And yeah, okay, it's not going to be me, but fuck it, I'm not here for glory. I'm here to help humanity where I can. There's another saying too, that if you've got every animal on Earth and stack them on top of each other, you could build like a, a bridge to Mars or to the moon. But a lot of those animals would die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a dumb joke. <laughs> so I was just trying to lighten the mood a little. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know if they uh, achieved that. But no. you, you know, yeah. Um, let's let's not let's not do a huge crime against humanity and kill every single animal by putting them in space on a ladder. Um, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> Over to you, Pads. Um, well, I don't really have anything to follow up. For some reason, the entire time I was thinking about with, when it, with, with the space elevator, I was thinking about the elevator from uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, just that great glass elevator going up. Because that will be pretty sick. I know. Besides that, I don't really have anything yeah, else to talk break about. The what glass about you? ceiling. Exactly. Exactly. Break it all the time. Um, Actually, what do you guys want to talk about? To the moon. Well, sorry, just a quick point on that, the child on the chocolate factory. Is that a metaphor for someone from the lower classes breaking the glass ceiling and becoming, like, the most powerful person in the world? Yeah, no, I could admit it, I'm pretty sure. Interesting. Maybe. Okay. I, no, I, I think that's just something I just put together then. Um, I'm clearly a bit late but, to the party. Hang on, boys. I But apart from this, I actually figured out a way we can actually get to space before You've we die, it. and it's not being an asteroid. You, you, you guys want to hear what it is? You've broken the rules of physics. I want to know no. your theory, James. All right, it's really simple, and you guys all listening should hear it. Invest in cryptocurrency. <laughs> we're going to the moon. We're going to the moon. <laughs> to the moon. It's the cheapest one. Ah. It only costs. It's only a few thousand per crypto, and you're off to the moon. <laughs> to the moon, baby. I love it. Oh, all right. On that. Okay, you know all what? right, I fellas. Think on that point. Tangent, yeah. On there. Yeah. Let's, let's time out. Let's call it there. Yeah, before James goes into a crypto rant, let's uh, let's take a TO on that. And I feel that on that note, everyone have a good day. Have a good week. See you around. See you. Hang on. Let's talk about crypto. Hang on. We'll talk about no, crypto no, 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 quickly. No, no, no. Shut it down, Patty. No, no, Patty. no, no, no. Thank you, everyone. Bye, Goodbye. bye, bye.